You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, and we'll look together at chapter 16 and verses 11 through 15. You'll find this on page 925 of the Pew Bible. Acts chapter 16, and we're going to read together verses 11 through 15. Hear the word of God. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Well, clearly, as we've read through this, you can see that the passage reveals the Spirit's sovereign work in regeneration. Jesus referred to this, of course, explicitly in his conversation with Nicodemus. He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And as we'll see, conversion is a work of God. It's not something that we do ourselves. The small group of missionaries journeyed from Troas to Philippi, and it was an ancient city named for the father of Alexander the Great. And it was, as Luke himself points out, a leading city of Macedonia. And here the four men stayed and they ministered for an unspecified length of time. And when the Sabbath arrived, the missionaries searched for a place of worship, much like this. And at the river, outside the city gates, some women had gathered for corporate prayer. It was near the water, perhaps on the bank, for easy access to water for their washings. And we don't know the makeup of the group. Perhaps they were all Gentile God-fearers. We don't know. Whatever the composition, this was the closest thing to a synagogue in the city of Philippi. Where were the men? Were all of them widows? The text is silent, but these women, we know this, maintained a faithful witness in that Roman colony. And Paul saw this as an ideal opportunity for speaking to them about Jesus. The obscure and humble circumstances were not a deterrent to him. 
There were no men, no synagogue, no rabbi, no scrolls, no parchments, just this little group of women. And it made no difference to Paul if it was the Areopagus, the great center for Greek learning, or if it was a riverside prayer meeting. He was ready to preach the word both in season and out of season, and he was content to bring the good news of Christ to whomever he met. I remember the early years of this particular church, how we worshiped week in and week out with 40 people, but it was wonderful. And we ought not to despise the day of small things. Beginnings may be humble, the instruments may be weak, but God can do great things. Isn't that what Jesus meant in his parable? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Don't despise the day of small things. The apostle obviously told them the story about Jesus and his atoning sacrifice. He explained... I'm convinced of how the Son of God was sent on a mission from heaven to save sinners. His person and work is the admiration of angels. It's a spectacle of wonder to the heavenly host. Peter says that these are the kind of things into which angels long to look. The mystery of the gospel and the method of salvation is so glorious that even angels are fascinated by it. God's son was born of a woman, which in and of itself is staggering. He was born under the law. This man lived a perfect life and in all the while enduring the miserable effects of the curse and remained obedient. Every requirement of the law he fulfilled. Never once did he deviate, not once. He preached the kingdom of God. He performed healing, healing miracles of all sorts. And that's how he proved his identity and foreshadowed the age to come. Because you see, the messianic kingdom, the eschatological kingdom is characterized by health and wholeness. No diseases, no deformities, no painful afflictions of any kind. His miracles foreshadowed a kingdom of joy and blessedness and perfection. And then he gave his life as a ransom. That's what the Bible says, a ransom. Peter describes it this way. He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that under the infinite weight, the infinite weight of God's wrath, he suffered the penalty for our sins. And when that awful price was paid, the debt was discharged, and he said, it is finished. And the only condition for us to receive eternal life through him is to exercise faith in him. That's the only condition. And I'm sure that Paul said to those women that even that is a gift from God by the Holy Spirit, faith. Because he tells the Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. 
So on that riverbank, at that prayer meeting, Paul explained the gospel far better than I did. But he explained the gospel. And perhaps he even said something like this, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he was saying. And among those who were listening was a woman. One woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a very successful businesswoman. She was one who prospered in selling purple goods. And I say she was successful because it appears that she was a person of means, wealthy. How else could she offer to accommodate all those missionaries in her own house? And her commercial success equipped her as a patron of the early church. And interestingly, this Gentile woman was a God-fearer or a worshiper of God. We're not told how she learned about Yahweh, but somehow she had been instructed. She was not yet a full convert, but she was willing to assemble for prayer. She was not far from the kingdom. And as she sat listening, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. Isn't that incredible? As a God-fearer, her heart had been prepared by the Spirit to listen to Paul. She was a worshiper in much the same way as Cornelius the centurion was. But until now, she had not heard or responded to the good news about Jesus. But when Paul explained the gospel of Christ, she responded in faith. The Holy Spirit moved powerfully in her soul, enabling her to believe. And as a result, Lydia, the seller of purple, became the first convert in Europe. Isn't that incredible? The very first convert in Europe. What a privilege. And I think it's significant that God himself was the one who opened her heart. He took the initiative. She was totally passive. God was the one who opened it. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't Silas, it wasn't Lydia herself. It was the Holy Spirit opening her heart. That's what it says. He bore witness by and with the word in her heart, enlightened her mind. And when he unlocked the door of her soul, that Holy Spirit glided sweetly into the inner recesses of her being. That's incredible. That's when she was born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in light of that, I don't know how anybody can deny the sovereignty of God in salvation. So great an evil as sin can only be remedied by so great a good as spiritual rebirth. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. You can't see it. Nothing else can solve the problem of fallen man's wicked heart than this. The depraved soul requires omnipotent power to cure the disease of sin. The heart has to be opened by almighty power, the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
so that Christ doesn't only knock on the door by his word, he opens it by the power of his spirit. I hope that's why you're here. He's knocked by his word, he's opened by his spirit. And thus the believer is born again so that he can see the kingdom. And even the most depraved soul can be transformed by the spirit's power because fallen man Fallen woman is stark blind to the things of God. You've tried to talk to somebody about the things of Christ. Their eyes glaze. They can't see it. Doesn't make any sense. But even in his base depravity, the sinner is no match for the work of regeneration. The spirit comes and he renews that depraved will. He sanctifies those corrupt affections. He changes the evil heart. And when Christ appeared to the two on the road to Emmaus, he opened their minds to grasp the things that he was saying. Oh, think about it. The application, this is what we're talking about. The application of redemption is a glorious and necessary part of salvation that he applies it to you. In a marvelous way, I think it combines the infinite wisdom and the sovereign power of God. Because through the ministry, God presents the truth of the gospel to the understanding. Here it is. I explained it to you. And at the same time, he pervades the inner recesses of the heart by his spirit to open you up to it. That's how the word of Christ is made effectual in the conversion of sinners. You have to have the outward call of the gospel and the inward work of the Holy Spirit. And with divine wisdom, we are taught. And with divine power, we are drawn. Jesus said, Elder Van Drunen read it, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Not pushes him or her, draws Blind eyes are opened, the stubborn will is subdued, the hard heart is melted, and Lydia is a perfect illustration of the efficacy of sovereign grace. The Spirit of Christ comes into the heart, not by force, but by consent, by consent. And we're transformed, and we're made willing in the day of his power. And that's a mystery to me. I'll be honest with you. It's a mystery. I can't explain that. But just because I can't explain it doesn't make it false. Somehow, the power of God, sovereign, and the freedom of man sweetly go together. And God creates in us a clean heart, and he upholds us with a willing spirit. And he puts in us a new heart so that we can walk in his ways and therefore, God displays the power of his grace and he wins the consent of the sinner. Isn't that incredible? It's a convergence of infinite wisdom and sovereign power. And doesn't it also prove, as I said, that faith which saves is a gift from God? Contrary to Arminian theology, sincere brothers, but I think sadly misguided, Arminian theology, we can't produce faith ourselves. Oh, a person can hear the gospel, a person can think about Christ, a person can ponder his work, 
And that's relatively easy, but it is a very difficult thing to bring the soul and Christ together. One can understand the truth rationally, who doesn't see it any, in any other way but spiritually, doesn't see it spiritually. And believe me, there are plenty of liberal theologians who can be classified that way. They can read the Bible, they can study its history, they can understand its grammar and its syntax. They may, may even have a good grasp of the words that the page says, and they don't believe it. They can't recognize it. It has no hold on their affections and no root in their heart and no influence over their lives. And nothing short of infinite almighty power of the triune God can solve their problem. Because you see, it's not just enlightening the mind, it's also renewing the will that's important. How stubborn is my unregenerate will when I wasn't a Christian? We are by nature stiff-necked, according to the Bible, and God has to draw us to Christ. It's what we call a divine wooing. You know how the bridegroom woos his bride? A work deep inside that the Spirit generates faith, which then begins to regulate the entirety of life. And you can't earn it. You can't buy it. It's a free gift. And God bestows it whenever and wherever on whomever he pleases. That's what sovereignty means. We throw around that word all the time. He's sovereign. Whenever, wherever, whomever he pleases. It's not up to you or me. And he's told us that he'll do this through the means he's appointed. So it's for us to pray for faith and to apply ourselves to the word of God. Isn't that what Lydia did? She was at the prayer meeting. She was attending and listening to Paul. And that's when the Lord opened her heart. She was in a position to hear the word of God. So we bring our children. We're thankful they're here. And they listen to the word of God. That's a privilege of Rayleigh. She's a member of this church and she's exposed to the gospel week in and week out. Lydia put herself where God could be found, where he promises to be found. Because the outward means are as necessary as the inward grace and they go together. And it's no coincidence, I'm convinced that the Lord has prompted you to be here this morning. That's no coincidence. There's no such thing as a coincidence. This isn't the only place, but it is a place where the word is preached. And the Lord uses this to convert sinners and to comfort and build up believers. God appoints the ministry, and as we are taught by him, we're drawn by him. And that's what we mean when we say he works through the ordinary means of grace. This is why the believers in the early church were committed to the ordinances. It says in Acts 2, simply this, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Very simple, humble, ordinary means. And all of this refers to effectual calling. Isn't that a marvelous truth? 
The natural man can't understand spiritual things. He has to discern them spiritually. You have to have a spiritual faculty. And God then diffuses light into the mind. He infuses grace into the will and you're born. And that's what it means when it says he opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. It's not just a consideration of a truth. It's a deep, hearty embrace of Jesus. It's not enough to be a God-fearer. America has plenty of God-fearers. Sometimes I like to call it God-friendly. And I know that's wrong because by nature we hate him. But there are some in our culture who will politely tolerate Christianity as long as it stays within reasonable limits. Keep it locked away in your public service on Sunday. Don't let it out. Don't become a fanatic, and I'll tolerate you. But you see, that's not enough. Christianity is a way of life. It influences everything that you do and say, or it should. The gospel is not just something to consider. It has to be embraced. It's a real change that occurred in Lydia, and it was deep within the heart. Because conversion is a matter of the heart. There is not a thing that you or I can do about that. It's up to God. And we ought to be forever thankful that he's willing and able to do so. This is what he predicted in Ezekiel 36. This is what he said, and I quote him. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So he promises not just truths, but the joy of children. I love it. The unconverted sinner is closed up and walled off from Christ. That's the truth. The door of the heart is closed and bolted against the things of God. But the Spirit is able to open it so that Jesus can enter in. That's why Elder, Gillen, or Elder Van Drunen read Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. He comes in. And notice the kind of influence that her conversion had upon the rest of her family. It says she was baptized and her household as well. That's the first time in the book of Acts that baptism of a household is recorded. And it means that she was admitted and all of her dependents were admitted as well. And it's an illustration of the biblical principle of family solidarity. God, in administering the covenant of grace does so in ways to include the family. He tells us in Psalm 103, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So when God converts a person, that person's household is set apart. Doesn't it make sense? that he values what we value? 
God has always kept the family central in his covenant dealings. And her conversion made an immediate impact upon the family circle. And this also tells us something about the fruit of saving grace. It says, after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us saying, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I want you to notice two things Lydia did as a result of being born again. First, she was baptized in the triune name. In obedience to Christ's command, she publicly identified as a Christian. Second, she began serving the body of Christ by extending hospitality to others. She used her estate and her resources to serve the kingdom of Christ so that her heart was open to Christ and her home was open to the saints. And so what this tells us is that a Christian's faith is expressed by what is believed and by what is practiced. In the sight of God, you're justified by faith alone in Christ, but how do you evaluate yourself? Let me ask you that question. How do you evaluate if you're in Christ? How do you know? There are many who freely claim to be Christians. In theory, they say, I'm a Christian. I love Jesus. I heard Billy Graham, and I have the utmost respect for Billy Graham. But people said, oh, I'd listen to him, and that's enough for me. They claim to be Christians, but there's no evidence in their lives that that's truly the case. No proof. They merely approve the scripture and they agree with the doctrines. Do you know what it says in Psalm 50? Listen to this. To the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. So they talk a good game, but they don't follow it up with practice. They take God's word upon their lips. They can discuss the doctrines. They can go to seminary. They can pass a theological exam. They can even get a degree. They can appear to be godly. They can even preach in a local church. But it's all a cloak. They use it to cover and conceal the wickedness of their hearts. And the Pharisees are perfect illustrations. Jesus said to the crowds and the disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do because they preach and don't practice. You know, we can put it this way. Even a man with bad breath can play a sweet melody on a clarinet. A hypocrite can preach a good sermon while living an ungodly life. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, John says, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. I'm convicted by that, because so often I live so inconsistently with what I profess. We are to be doers of the word, not just hearers. Henry Erdmans puts it this way. He says this, if I had a car with the engine that was ready for the grave, I'd have a new engine put in. I'd take the car into the mechanic who would put a new engine in it for me. 
If when I got that car back, it ran just as poorly, I'd begin to wonder if the old really had been replaced or just cleaned up. And it's no different with our new lives in Christ. I conclude with this observation. God draws to Christ people from all walks of life, both low and high. According to the world standards, Paul tells us that not many are wise, not many are powerful, noble, or strong. He likes to save humble people. But he also saves from every strata of society, even high society. And regardless of from where a sinner is drawn, the conversion is the same. The heart is changed, faith is exercised, the soul is is saved. And it's the same with the humblest beggar as with the richest merchant. Lydia was a very wealthy woman. And this very successful and wealthy woman was born again by the Spirit and she was one for Christ. We should not be prejudiced against the poor. We should not be prejudiced against the rich. He can draw people from anywhere and he does. And her obedience and hospitality were expressions of the sincerity of her faith. So it just shows that the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Thank God that he saves people from all walks of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this marvelous story about Lydia. We're grateful that you've shown us that you're sovereign in the work of conversion because if it were left up to us, we never would have embraced Christ by faith. We ask that all that are here would embrace the Lord Jesus and receive the gift of eternal life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.